Good morning. Wonderful to see you today. And I'm looking forward to just sharing some good news with you throughout the morning. Uh, I read a good deal about Martin Luther in this last week. And uh, many people in Martin Luther's day thought that he was insane. And many people still wonder about that because of the, the personality of Martin Luther. Uh, one of the reasons they thought he was insane was he was obsessed by his sin. Uh, on one occasion, he went into the confessional and uh, he confessed his sin for six hours. Six hours, think about that. It rarely takes me six minutes to confess my sin, but he takes six hours. And uh, here's what happened on that particular occasion. The priest uh, said to him, look here, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive. Parental murder, uh, blasphemy, adultery, instead of all these peccadillos. Man, God is not angry with you. You are angry with God. And Martin Luther, as I say, just could not grasp the fact that that his sin wasn't as bad as he thought it was, which is a wrong kind of statement. So I'm going to start over again. Martin Luther never really had an encounter with God. That's the real truth. And this caused me to ask the question, which comes first in the life of a growing disciple? An acute awareness of our utter sinfulness or an awakening to God's awesome holiness? Now notice that I said a growing disciple, because I believe that a new believer, someone coming to God for the first time, comes to him out of some sense of need, something's missing in their life, or they're going through a tremendous trial, but it's not usually because they're out of sorts about their utter sinfulness. Uh, but Luther was tormented by his sinfulness, so much so that he came to the place where he actually hated God. He said to God, God, I hate you. I don't love you, I hate you. Until he had an awakening of God's grace as God broke through to his angry, hurting heart. And this leads us to our central truth for the day. I thought long and hard about this truth. It may come across as simple or simplistic, but I hope it'll be much, much more than that. And by the way, this is not going to be a feel-good sermon today. You're not going to walk out of here smiling or laughing. This is going to be a, a time when we're going to examine ourselves, we're going to look at God and come to the right conclusions, I believe. But here's our central truth today. We will see God in his great holiness when we grasp the depth of our sinfulness. Now, grasping the depth of our sinfulness happened to many saints in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to look at several of those as we uh, look at this one word, this one word, holy, uh, throughout the morning from the Bible start to finish. But let me assure you that we'll barely scratch the surface this morning. We'll, there's, it's impossible, really, to, to see the whole panorama, the panoply of, of God's holiness. I had over 30 pages of notes for this sermon, including dozens and dozens and dozens of scriptures. And so how can we cover that in 35 or 40 minutes? It's impossible. 
And so this requires of us to ask the question, what does the word holy mean? Well, let's take a look at some of the meanings of holy. It means that God is perfect in all of his attributes. He's, he's at, and that, that's the word we were planning to use, perfect or perfection. And in everything about God, it's absolutely perfect. We also come to understand holy as meaning pure, that is, uh, incapable of evil or the absence of evil. The real uh, English word for holy is separate or to be set apart. And things and people, people especially saints, can be set apart for God's use. And then we understand the word holy to mean perfectly just and good. Another word for that is righteous. And God is perfectly just, always. And he's righteous at all times. But here's one that I like. It's uh, the word transcendence. And uh, we can speak of the holy or completely holy other. Uh, a famous theologian named Paul Tillich, with whom I disagreed about almost everything, uh, coined this phrase, the holy other. God is just different, just very, almost indescribable. And so God reveals to us all we need to know about him in, in the book. But we cannot exhaust all there is to know about him, neither will we ever. Even when we get to heaven, there'll still be mystery about God that we won't understand. As a matter of fact, the scripture says in 2 Timothy that no man has seen God nor ever will. The only God we're going to see is Jesus in heaven. Because God's magnificence, his greatness, his grandeur is so great that we can never see him. Now I happen to believe that all this mystery about God and his holiness comes to us powerfully when we gaze on his creation, especially the skies in the heaven. In fact, we see the holiness of God uh, in his creation in Revelation chapter 4. And that's where we're going to start our search this morning for that one word throughout the Bible. Here we see four living creatures who are standing before the throne of God, and I believe Jesus is on that throne. They're standing before the throne of God, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. Just as we read in Isaiah a few minutes ago, the seraphim come and they, they stand before the throne and there's smoke in the, at the throne and, and the whole earth shakes and the seraphim call out, holy, holy, holy. And they're joined in praise, in God's praise, by 24 elders who add this chorus as they lay their crowns at Jesus' feet. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. We juxtapose the holy, holy, holy with the 24 elders who are around the same throne and they're declaring that God's holiness, his holy otherness, his transcendence is as a result of the fact that he created all things. He's the creator. Everything else is created huge difference and by the way 
The threefold holiness is the Hebrew way the, uh, of expressing a superlative. We don't say most holy. Uh, holy is holy. But in that superlative kind of language, holy, holy, holy. You never see in the Bible, ever, love, love, love. And yet we exalt the love of God over the holiness of God all the time. It's more comforting for us to exalt the love of God over the holiness of God, but never in the Bible. Holy, holy, holy. When Jesus wants to emphasize something that he's going to say is really, really true, he says, verily, verily. And so we have that superlative about God. Uh, I think it's fair to say that God's holiness is his primary attribute above all others. And his holiness encompasses all his other traits. But I want to go back to this idea of creation. The majestic heavens speak powerfully to us of God's glory and his transcendence. In Psalm chapter 19, we read the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Now look at this. This is just an amazing statement. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. You never hear any words from the heavens. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Aren't you amazed as you look up into the heavens night after night? I make it a practice almost every night to go out and look at the heavens. By the way, the clouds last night were just absolutely gorgeous, just feathers of clouds all over the sky. And so you couldn't see many stars, but I just am amazed at the grandeur of God as I look on the heavens. But not only that, as I look at beautiful flowers and trees dancing in the wind, or you see the power of God in tornadoes or hurricanes, or you meditate for a few minutes if you know anything about the human eye and its absolute complexity. Even a single cell is so complex we can't begin to fathom all that's in a human cell. And so the psalmist calls out, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God's creation speaks of his grandeur, of his holiness. The same concept is repeated in Romans chapter 1, but here is a new twist to it. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. That's part of the message. The wrath of God. We don't like to hear that. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. And again, because of God's holiness, who suppress the truth by their wickedness, you do it too. I do it too. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain. Heavens proclaim the glory of God. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, which includes his holiness, have been clearly seen, clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. 
Now here's a new concept. The wrath of God. Holy wrath. All God's attributes and emotions are holy, pure, just, and righteous. It's holy love, holy kindness, holy mercy, holy patience, holy forbearance, holy. I can't say it strong enough. Now let's go back to our central truth. And then we'll start our trek through the Bible with people encountering the holiness of God. We will see God in his holiness when we grasp the depth of our sinfulness. Adam and Eve sure found out about God's holiness, his justice. God doesn't just wink at disobedience. He doesn't just smile down on us and say, poor babies, I understand. No, the penalty was death for disobedience. And they got thrown out of paradise. And they had to suffer the curse of the ground. And birth was going to be painful from that point on. And the war between the sexes began that day. No, God doesn't just gloss over sin. One sin, one bad sin, one rebellion against God. And Adam and Eve grasped the depth of their sinfulness and they began to see God in his great holiness. But only after they hid from him, they covered up and then they began to argue with him. The serpent made me do it. The woman you gave me, he's accusing God. The woman you gave me made me do it. Cover up. Hiding. And that's exactly our problem today. We defend, 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 or we deny, deny, deny anything but acknowledge that God is right and we are wrong about what he calls is sin or failing to do what he says is right. That's just our nature. The day they got kicked out of the garden, Adam and Eve knew that God is holy and it's not wise to disobey him. Now, some of us are a bit hard-headed about this. So I want to show you several saints. In other words, you may be sitting there and I have not proved my case yet, but I am going to prove my case beyond a shadow of a doubt by the time we're finished this morning. The people who fought with God because they didn't believe, they didn't like what God was doing in their lives, they all lost. And so will you. But far too many of us have to learn the hard way. So let's look at some of the saints. We'll look first at Jacob, and then we'll look at Job, Moses, Jonah, Habakkuk, strange person most of us haven't heard about, and then finally, we'll look at Saul, who became Paul. Let's start with Jacob. What we have with Jacob is Jacob is fearful. He's scared to death because he's coming back from Padam Aram, and he has had his wives and his children there and all of his worldly goods, and he's coming back, and he knows he's going to meet Esau, who, and he knows that Esau hates him. And he's fearful for his life, 
And so he sends all of his family and all of his goods off to one side of the river, and then I think he crosses the river, and there he meets what the Bible describes at the first as a man. And this man begins to wrestle with him. And he wrestles with him, and they wrestle literally all night long, until finally the man says, let, let me go. He could see that he was not prevailing. He was not winning. This is amazing. So tenaciously was Jacob wrestling. And so he says, uh, let me go. The, the day is coming. And Jacob says, tell me your name. And, no, I'm sorry. Uh, the man says to Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob says, my name is Jacob. God says, well, that's right. Your name is Jacob, but it's not going to stay Jacob anymore. It's going to become Israel. Indicating that there's going to be a, a new way from now on. So they continue to wrestle. And finally, God touches his hip. And we know that it's God because he, in fact, does bless Jacob. And furthermore, from what Jacob says in just a minute, he touches his hip and he goes lame and now he's got no fight left in him. And God blesses him and then Jacob responds in this way. Uh, he, he basically says, uh, I have seen the face of God and I have lived. He survives seeing the face of God and that's what the word penile means. He named the place Peniel. And R.C. Sproul, a book about God's holiness, uh, comes to this conclusion with regard to Jacob's fight with God. The Holy One of Israel cannot be defeated in personal combat. But there is some consolation here. Jacob wrestled with God and lived. He was beaten. He was left crippled. But he survived that battle. At least we can learn from this that God will engage us in our honest struggles. We may wrestle with the Holy One. Indeed, for the transforming power of God to change our lives, we must wrestle with Him. We must know what it means to fight with God all night if we are also to know what it means to experience the sweetness of the soul's surrender. You can fight. We all do. But we will lose. Do you have fears within? Doubtings without? Wrestle with our holy, righteous God and you'll be strengthened by his grace. Or perhaps you're suffering from or undergoing some kind of suffering. Then Job is our guide. Everybody knows about Job. Job was declared righteous by God, and yet God hands him over to Satan, and he is punished horribly by Satan to the point where he's got boils and uh, just terrible suffering. He loses his family. He loses all of his wealth. And... He, he listens to his miserable comforters, and finally he has it, and now he comes to God and he says, God, this is not fair. What did I do 
to deserve this. And he rose up to challenge God. Now, God's reply was hardly comforting. Now, I remind you, God had already pronounced him innocent. God had already pronounced to, to Satan, he is a good man. And so you would think he would say, now, now, I understand. This was a test and all of that. That's not what he does. This is, I don't completely understand God's response, but I'm going to tell you what it is. It says, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you? He comes back now to creation. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? And God peppered Job relentlessly with more questions like that. Unanswerable questions. And God was really indignant with Job. This wasn't a meek and mild, gentle inquiry. And after the first round of impossible questions, Job answers, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice. But I will say no more. He doesn't have a word to say. But God's not done. Would you discredit my justice, God asks him? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? And friends, we do this all the time. God, are you doing right by me? So God lights into Job again. And finally, Job has heard enough. And look now at his conclusion. A good man. A just man who is confronted by the holiness of God. Look what he says. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I, this good man, despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Uh, let me remind you of our central truth for the day. We will see God in his great holiness when we grasp the depth of our sinfulness. Now, don't take this story to mean that you shouldn't question God. Just be sure that when you question him, you question him as the holy, sovereign righteous God who does everything for your ultimate glory and for his and for your ultimate good. Are you suffering from some physical malady today or some emotional or psychological difficulty today? My heart goes out to you. Our hearts go out to you. And so does God's. Talk to him. 
talk to him about it and see him in all his glory. And when you talk to him and see him in all his glory, you will find peace. Peace. Now look at, let's look at Moses in his inadequacy. Man, do I identify with this. First we have Jacob's fear. We have Job in his wondering why. And now we have Moses in his inadequacy. This passage changed my life. We come to the burning bush. Moses is going about his business one day and he uh, suddenly stops because there before him is a bush that's burning and it's not being consumed. Well, that would get anybody's attention, right? That would get my attention, a bush and nothing's happening to it. And out of the bush, he starts to go up towards the bush. Who wouldn't to try to figure this out? And God stops and says, don't come any further. In fact, take off the shoes from your feet, the sandals from your feet, for the ground in which you stand is holy ground. And then God begins to give him some instructions. He says, I want you to go back to Egypt. He'd been gone for 40 years. He says, I want you to go back to Egypt. And when you go back to Egypt, I want you to uh, tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses is saying to himself, what on earth? How on earth can you expect me to do that? And he begins to argue with God about that. And his argument is basically, I'm just not adequate, God. I'm slow of speech. I, I stutter. I, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a big talker. And he, he just keeps arguing with God. And um, so God tries to help him see that it's not going to be his strength or his power. He says, what's that you've got in your hand? He says, well, it's a staff. He says, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground, becomes a snake. Just pick it up, becomes a staff. Whoa. He'd never done that before. He'd never seen that before. Then God says to him, take your hand and put it in your breast. Puts his hand in his breast and pull it out. Full of leprosy. Whoa, now. And God says, now put it back in. Pull it back out. Perfectly whole. And Moses begins to see the power of God, but he doesn't give up. Continues to argue with God. And finally, and this is what uh, just, uh, uh, well, look at what he says here. Oh, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Uh, doesn't give up. But Moses said, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. This is what got me. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. Friends, I think we're on dangerous ground when we tell God what we can't do. I've done this for a large part of my adult life and I'm still learning that God 
makes me adequate, period. I told you that this passage changed my life. I was traveling on a train in Germany. I was part of a mission board, and I had an assignment to do in, in Germany. And I'm reading this passage. This was my practice to read through the scriptures every year com- completely through, and it still is my practice to do that. And I came across this passage, and I had been wrestling with God about whether or not I should stay in missions or go back to the pastorate. And going back to the pastorate was something that just scared me to death, and I didn't want to do it. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you the truth, all my adult life, I resisted God having me in the pastorate. I took all my education so that I wouldn't be qualified or credentialed to be a pastor, a preacher, and I just didn't want to do it. And I had done it for nine years in a church, but it was hard for me. It was difficult for me, and I said, God, I don't like this. I don't want to do it anymore, so I got into missions. But God had been working with me that, you know, maybe that's where he really wanted me. I came across this passage, and it said God's anger burned against Moses. He said, all right, you don't have to talk. I'll send somebody else. And I realized right then I had to stop saying no to God. So I made a bargain with him. I said, Lord, all right, I'll go back to the pastorate. And, uh, but you, two things, you got to make it easier for me. <laughs> and you got to make me like it more. <laughs> and he did both things. And now, some of you may be saying right now, yeah, you should have stayed in missions, but that's, that's another story. Let me ask you, friends, has God picked you to do something good and you just say, I'm not, I'm not adequate? By the way, uh, this passage also rep- uh, related, uh, I'll just tell you this story really quickly. Uh, one of the most famous preachers in America today, and I mean he is famous, there isn't a pastor in, in America probably who doesn't know of him, his name is John Piper. He went to Wheaton College, and he was there about the same time I was at Wheaton College. And uh, I, know, I don't ever remember meeting him, but in any case, uh, John Piper stuttered so badly as a student that he hardly ever talked to anybody. And it w- he would make it his practice to come into class late every day come in late because in most classes, one of the professors would either pray or ask a student to pray. He was mortified at the possibility of somebody asking him to pray. Till one day he came in late and he didn't come in late enough. And the professor saw him and said, John, would you lead us in prayer? He about died. But he stood up and he prayed and he didn't stutter once. Not once. And in that moment he realized that God could use him and would use him. He's been one of the most famous preachers in America today. And never, I've never, I've heard him many times, never once stutters. Although he says on occasion in private conversation, he'll stutter once in a while again. Someone has said where the Lord guides, he provides. He provides you with all that you need for what he calls you to do. Yes, you are inadequate, but he is not. Now I want you to notice God's assessment of Moses' tongue in Acts chapter 7, verse 22. This is important. I hope I hear the same thing someday. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. 
Those were the words of Stephen just before he was stoned. Moses was powerful in speech and action. Uh, Well, Moses reluctantly obeyed God, but Jonah did not. You know the story of Jonah. Who doesn't know the story of Jonah? God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to preach repentance to Nineveh. Unless they repent, I'm going to destroy the whole city. Jonah says, not me. I'm not going there. Whoop, he gets on a boat, goes to, on, on its way to Tarshish. God says, oh, no, you don't. And he sends a tremendous storm. They throw him overboard. Great fish swallows Jonah. He's in that fish three days and three nights. After three days and three nights, they vomits him out on the ground. Jonah reluctantly goes to Nineveh preaches a great message of revival and repentance and the people all repent. And you'd think that Jonah would say, oh God, you were right, wonderful, I can't believe how you used me and all of that. That doesn't happen. He's mad. He's mad and he goes and he pouts and God sees him angry. He says, what are you angry about? He says, I'm angry because I knew you were a, man, a God of you know, compassion and so forth. Well, let's look at what uh, he says in Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, oh Lord, this is not what I said. Is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Note that Jonah is, um, has, he's answered by God now. And uh, look at what God's answer is. But Jonah, but God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Now God had sent a vine, as I indicated, I think I said this, that, uh, a vine, what did I say? You know, maybe I said it last night. There was a, a vine and it gave shade to Jonah and uh, and he took some delight in the shade, but then God sends a worm to eat the vine and it goes away and he's in the blazing sun. So God says, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it. You did nothing. I provided it. It sprang up overnight and died overnight, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people. Some people think that means that there were 120,000 children plus adults. Huge city who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And then what? Nothing. That's how the book ends. Jonah has no answer to this holy God. Friends, there is no answer you can give to holy God when you have purposely disobeyed him or when you complain about his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, his kindness, his patience. God always does what is right and we will be wise to line up with his righteousness. So now we come to Habakkuk, who had to learn this lesson as he bitterly accused God 
of injustice. What we have with Habakkuk is a prophet, and he knows that God is going to send Babylon to destroy Israel, to leave Israel absolutely in abject poverty, nothing left basically of it, people taken away, just a minority left. And he looks at all of that and he says, God, how on earth can you use this ugly, sinful, rotten kingdom to come and destroy Israel? We're bad, but we're not that bad. Get it? We're not that bad. R.C. Sproul writes, the prophet Habakkuk took God to task for doing things that offended his sense of justice. The prophet was appalled that God's people should suffer at the hands of a nation that was more wicked than they were themselves. On the surface, it looked as if God had abandoned his promises to the Jews and had become a turncoat, giving his divine allegiance to the wicked Babylonians. For Habakkuk, this was comparable to a modern-day Jew wondering if God was on Hitler's side during the Holocaust. Habakkuk's complaint was registered with a loud protest. So God gives an answer. I wish I had time. We'd have to read the whole book of Habakkuk, two or three chapters, to to see God's answer. But it's a majestic answer. I encourage you to go back and read it. But it's it's more important that we note God's answer in the end. Look at what he says. When God finally spoke, Habakkuk's reaction was like Job's. I heard and my heart pounded. My lip, my heart pounded. Heard God's answer. And, And my... My lips quivered at the sound. You know when you're, when you're crying uncontrollably and your lips, you've seen children, their lips just quiver? He's mush. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. At the sound of God's voice. Look at what it continues. Though the fig tree does not bud, And there are no grapes in the vines. God, if you strip Israel bare, if you destroy us, blow us to smithereens, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. He saw the holiness of of God. He heard God in his majestic power. I trust you. I trust you. Oh, friends, I see injustice all around, all around me, all around our world. You do too. We sit back and we wonder about it. We look at the chaos in our nation, in the world, We call out, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Help us. We can do better than this. Listen carefully. Help is on the way. Have you heard some politicians say that? But in this case, our help won't ever come from the politician or the world leaders. Our helper is on the way. He will come with all his holy angels to right every wrong and to bring justice finally to this sin-sick world. Can I get an amen to that?
That's our hope in the justice and the holiness of God. Now finally we come to Saul and his self-righteousness. Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he was convinced that all his works for God put him in right standing with God. He felt as though he had managed to get, he was like the rich young ruler, all these I've kept from my youth, basically Paul would have said. Until one day, and he's on his way to kill more Christians, to imprison more, to torture some more with beatings and everything else. And the Son of God accosts him on the highway to Damascus. And in, there's a bright light, brighter than the sun, he says. And this speaks of God's Shekinah glory. And when Paul sees that, he falls to the ground. And he says, who are you, Lord? And God says to him, Jesus says to him, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you kicking against the goads? Here's what he's basically saying. You know how an oxen has, has this bar behind him as he's, as he's pulling whatever he's pulling. And every once in a while he gets irritated with that bar. Maybe it nicks him in the, in the calf or something. He begins to kick it. What happens? It bounces back and hits him harder. It's like pounding your head against the wall. Jesus is saying, why are you hitting your head against the wall? Fighting against me. Don't you realize this is a losing cause? And Paul turns his life over to the Lord Jesus as Savior. And now I want to conclude with a brilliant statement by R.C. Sproul, which sums up all that I've been trying to say today. The struggle we have with a holy God is rooted in the conflict between God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. He is just and we are unjust. This tension creates fear, hostility, and anger within us toward God. The unjust person does not desire the company of a just judge. If you're with a judge and you know that he knows the truth and he's going to sentence you, you're not going to enjoy dinner with him. We become fugitives, fleeing from the presence of one whose glory can blind us and whose justice can condemn us. We are at war with him unless or until we are justified. Only the justified person can be comfortable in the presence of a holy God. Oh, dear friends, let's look at our central truth one more time. We will see God in his great holiness when we grasp the depth of our sinfulness. Now, our tendency, our tendency in life is to deny, 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 justify ourselves, defend ourselves, even before a holy God, even sometimes when we're in the midst of our sin. Today we've seen how futile that is. We always lose. We can either lose in confession and repentance 
And then in God's mercy, he blesses us when we don't deserve it. Or we can lose in rebellion and disobedience, and then God gives us what we really deserve. So let me give you some guidance on this matter today. We're all familiar with the comforting words of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, but we need to look at verse 8 as well. If we claim to be without sin, anytime we come before our holy God, we deceive ourselves. Heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. Above all things, who can comprehend it? And the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He is just and righteous and holy and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What is the justice by which God cleanses us from all unrighteousness? It's the fact that Jesus paid for all our sin on the cross. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. But when we confess our sins, we need to do it as Isaiah did. After he saw the Lord Jesus high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple with glory, and the earth shook. And here's what Isaiah said. Then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I've seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. And one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. No excuses. No comparisons, no rationalizations, no defenses, no denials, no ignoring. We confess as David did so long ago, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right, just, holy, when you speak, and justified when you judge. So I want to give you an opportunity to come before the Lord this morning in sincere repentance and confession. No comparisons. I'm better than him. I'm better than I used to be. No. Come before him and say, Lord, take a look. Shine that light deep in my heart. Search me, O God, and try me. Know my wicked thoughts clean me up 
you do that as Pastor Carlos sings this morning. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. And without you, I fall apart, because you're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I before the Lord as we all will and the scripture says that we'll all give account for ourselves to the Lord all by ourselves our one defense his righteousness imputed to us he took all our sin so that we could have all his righteousness he became poor so that we might become rich Let's give ourselves wholly, completely, totally to the Lord for his service. Recognizing that he's holy, we are not apart from him. Let's stand for prayer. Father in heaven, we don't hear about this very often. We don't even like to hear about it. But how we need it, we need to know that you're holy and our propensity is to be unholy. Our default is wanting to do what we shouldn't do and refusing to do what we should. But God, as we come to you, we offer ourselves to you. You help us. You guide us. You walk beside us. 
and you help us serve you aright. Thank you for this blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.